Sunset Lake CBD is a majority employee-owned hemp farm located right outside of Burlington, Vermont. Before they started growing hemp, Sunset Lake Farms produced cream for Ben & Jerry's. Sunset Lake CBD doesn't use any pesticides or herbicides to grow any of its hemp plants, and they use organic fertilizer and other sustainable farming techniques to ensure the long-term health of the soil and to minimize their carbon footprint. So like all of us, my days are really stressful. By the end of the night, my kids are in bed, I'm taking a minute to chill, but I'm still unwinding. I recently started using the Relax Gummies infused with CBD isolate, reishi mushroom extract, and ashwagandha root extract. I'm really glad I tried these because they really helped me get ready for a good night of sleep, and I really think I sleep better, so I'd highly recommend it. So check out Sunset Lake CBD today at sunsetlakecbd.com and use the code HFPOD for 20% off your order. That's sunsetlakecbd.com and use the code HFPOD for 20% off your order. Farmer-owned, Vermont-grown, Sunset Lake CBD. Hey everyone, it's Cam Hurt, host of the Best Show Ever podcast, and we have got a second season coming out very soon that I am very excited about. We've got some very cool special guests, including musical acts that we all love, like Karina Reichman, Daniel Donato, Jake Brownstein from Eggy, Rick and Peter from Goose, and many more. Tune in for new episodes dropping on Osiris Media March 5th on the Best Show Ever podcast. Hey listeners. I want to tell you about a sponsor, Music Masters Collective. They're a nonprofit organization that produces unique music events, providing opportunities for fans and artists to meet and collaborate in an inspired and creative atmosphere. Every week, they host different events, all with the opportunity to learn from world-class musicians like O'Teal Burbridge, Trouble No More, former members of the band, Milk Carton Kids, Nikki Glaspie, Bill Frizzell, Sean Colvin, and many more. This June, join the Fab Faux, Joan Osborne, John Sebastian, Marshall Crenshaw, and a great group of faculty for the debut of Magical Mystery Camp. This all-inclusive, once-in-a-lifetime music vacation experience in the heart of the Catskills will be packed with nightly performances, workshops, speakers, song circles, open mics, and a lot more. If you're a performing musician at any level, bring your instrument. If you're a music lover, bring your good spirit. It's an amazing experience for individuals, friends, and couples alike. Registration is open, spots are filling up, so check it out soon. And scholarships are available. Check out magicalmysterycamp.com slash helpingfriendly to learn more. Hey everybody, it's the Helping Friendly Podcast. This is episode 175. This is RJ. I'm here with Matt and Jonathan. What's up, guys? Hey there. For this one, call me Sally. Sally. That's what I want to say that fans out there. T- today. <laughs> ah, damn, you stole you stole my my cool <laughs> intro, which is that I'm drinking a Save the Robots IPA um, in in honor of our esteemed guest, famous podcaster. From the Touchdowns All Day with John Barber podcast. John, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, guys. It's a pleasure to be here. It's really cool to, to be able to talk to you. You've been, you've been delivering the best monologues in podcasting, in my opinion, over the past, you know, however many episodes you've done at this point. It's been, it's been a, good, a good run. Um, 
Are you are you enjoying it still? I cut one today. I cut episode twenty nine today, and I did a rant about my newborn baby and how meeting other babies isn't like ugh, gross like it used to be before I had a baby. Like there's been a conversion in my head that's made other babies now acceptable because I have my own baby. I don't know. Something it was something like that. So there's I a love switch. it. Yes. Yes. Three months ago. I don't want to meet your baby. Now, let me meet your baby. Let me pick up your baby. Let me, you know what I mean? You don't a real have to, switch. You don't have to socially distance from babies, do you? Or, or do you? I mean, not from your own baby, but from other babies? I, I assume the government has some regulations. Yeah, yeah. for sure. <laughs> so, of course, John is from the Disco Biscuits. We're going to talk about a ton of stuff, the biscuits, fish, and all kinds of things. First, we have a, a special announcement we have to make before we get started, which is that one of our team members used a razor for the first time in a, in a very long time. A very, very long time. Jonathan, what happened? I, I shaved my head. Like, I use clippers all the time, you know, but I shaved my head with my, uh, with my Harry's razor, and holy cow, like... I, I'm not I'm not a big one for a commercial endorsement speech, but it, it was beautiful, so smooth, and honest to God, I like I didn't cut myself once, so I've never shaved the top of my head with a razor before, uh, so it was rad. We're recording this on video, and we can't see your entire head, but from what we can see, there are no cuts, and it looks like a really a good well, close shave. You're this is like five days growth. It's okay. so short right here. Yeah. And still, because I mean, it was like, it was amazing. My wife was utterly freaked out. Oh, you didn't <laughs> just shave it today? No, I did it on Saturday. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. Looking yeah. smooth. Impressive. All right. Matt's next for the shaving the head with the Harry's razor. No way. Not, <laughs> not happening at all. I did give mine uh, to my wife, though, and she's really liking it. She said it's, it's pretty awesome. We'll bring her down, get her on, put I her think on we, the mic. We need to get uh, Harry's to start making them with like pink handles or something like that. It's true. It's true. We um, Well, we want to just tell you that Harry's is here to help you look your best while shaving. Uh, listeners of the show get a free trial set, harrys.com slash hfpod. You get a weighted ergonomic handle for a firm grip, a five-blade razor, some shave gel, and a travel blade cover to keep your razor dry on the go, which you will be on the go at some point. So go to harrys.com slash hfpod to get a, a trial set. All right. So we want to say one more thing. We're really excited to partner with Backline. Um, obviously, the crisis we're facing has threatened the livelihood and mental health of tons of musicians as well as music industry folks. Um, Backline is helping to to provide some of this help, being the music industry's mental health and wellness resource hub. They launched in 2019 and they're helping artists, crew, and their families with access to mental health and wellness resources. And we're excited to help spread the word about what they're doing. So go to backline.care to donate, learn more, get in touch um, if you need help. And uh, yeah, so good work, Backline. Some quick Osiris business, touchdowns all day, episode 29. When does it come out, John? Is it, uh, is it imminent? Is it like next couple of days, Sunday? Yeah. Episode 29, 30, 31, and 32 all come out probably next Wednesday. It would be my guess, Wednesday or Thursday. We're going to drop them all at one time. Nice. Because they're ready. This whole, like, waiting a week and spacing them out thing, like, 
I don't know. We'll get back to doing it that way when when my schedule gets more busy. But it seems weird to sit on podcasts now that I'm home all the time. I don't know if I go play concerts. Might as well put the podcast out, you know? Yeah, that's awesome. I, I'm releasing an episode next week that I recorded pre-quarantine. Pre-quarantine. Whoa. Whoa. Yeah, I've been that's sitting on crazy. it. Well, it's topical. So it's that is the Broke Down podcast, yeah. which Jonathan hosts. John, John, what have you learned from podcasting? Is there anything that sticks out, like anything that you've taken away from these 29 episodes? Well, definitely listening to the music that we make, like the Disco Biscuit jams that we listen to on the podcast are pointing out things that the band does really well that we can do again and also pointing out things that maybe I could do better that I've been fixing on stage and doing. So it's it's really from that point of view, it's invaluable and then I really like the response from people. It's been super positive and everybody really likes it. And I feel like it, I feel like it was needed in the community. Like I just decided to do it because we had talked about it and it was kind of seemed like a good idea. But now that it's out in the community and people use it as a way to get good biscuits fast, um, I feel like that was missing in the community. And it's cool to, to do something that people like and find useful. Do you think that some of that music you wouldn't have otherwise reflected on? Like, it sounds like it did affect the music. I mean, some of that stuff I'd never listened to in my entire life. You know what I mean? It's, yeah. it's require. I now have a job where I'm required to listen to stuff every single week, which you would think being in a jam band that that would be the case. But, you know, the perils of, of rock and roll get in the way. The, everything gets in the way of that one job. And it's a very core job. So that's why I like the podcast to begin with. But now I like the podcast because I'm, I'm, I'm starting to really bridge a lot of communication gaps with the fan base and get a, real, a nice dialogue going with everybody and what they like. And, and it's making everything better. And the, the fans love it. I've seen so many Disco Biscuits fans just like excited to, you know, hear hear from you about about the music about the jams about everything else which is it's cool it is a good way to connect but i have a question do you so fish kind of uh infamously or famously within this community went through this period of like no analysis no looking back on jams and then i think they they went through several waves of that have you gone through that similar process or have you just never really looked back on your music in a in an analytical way Oh, for sure. We did. We went through the exact same process and, and literally almost the same time in our career, ironically. I think it has to do with crowd size. I think when you're a little band and you're playing, you know, somebody's fraternity or you're playing some backyard, some somebody's farm somewhere or something like that, and you're doing a little thing, there's 300 people there, 500 people there, maybe 1,000, maybe 2,000 even occasionally. Like when you're that size band it's pretty easy to go up on stage and, and just kind of screw up or not play well together and walk off stage and just be like, eh, whatever, like, you know, let's hang out, let's join the party. But once you get to, like, a lot of people and people who are coming to the show to see you perform at a very high level, um, people have a lot of pride in what they played, whether it was right or not, from your point of view. From their point of view, they have a lot of pride in what they do. And then to walk off stage and to basically have, you know, uh, uh, a position where you've bottled up this thought and then you let it out in a way that maybe you don't have control of to somebody who 
feels like they just played a great show in front of a lot of people and take a lot of pride in what they do. It's just a, it's a combination that, you know, Jerry and Phil used to go after each other in the same way. And just, it, I feel like jam band music has that potential. And when the pride becomes big enough, you have to kind of let the, that piece of, of, I guess, criteria go or, or, or self-criticism or whatever. Criticism is the wrong word because sometimes it's positive. But, you know, that kind of like reflection post-show in a heated way is just like there's too many uh, uh, trouble spots in that conversation. It's too hard to navigate. You have to be like hugging it out like every six minutes to make that shit work. Yeah, I mean, you're you're in a relationship as well as collaborating musically. So Jerry, I think you were referencing, he shoved Phil down a small flight of stairs after after a show that they were recording that they ended up using for Live Dead. Uh, he said he went back to the tapes and he was like, well, I was completely wrong and we used it for the album. So now once I'm done with, once I played it, I'm done. It, there it is. It's happened. I had heard that story as well. So sounds sounds real to me. I heard that story from someone in the Grateful Dead organization. I don't remember who, but somebody told me that. I think it might have been Phil. <laughs> We're going to talk about your history playing guitar and, and for, you know, forming the Disco Biscuits. And we're going to talk over some fish jams and some Disco Biscuits jams, which to be fair, I think you with touchdowns all day have innovated this format of, of playing jams and talking and explaining what's going on or, or at least reflecting on what's going on. So we're going to adapt that for some fish jams and we're going to look at a, a Disco Biscuits jam as well. But I want to, I want to just cool. ask one more follow up from, from this conversation. Do you think it's, in terms of the analysis or, or leaving leaving the music on the stage, like if you're a singer-songwriter and you're just playing a set of 15 songs that are three minutes long and with a band, like maybe you know exactly what's to be delivered. So it's like easy to see whether it was like went well or not. Whereas in an improvisational band, it's like, what is the ideal outcome? Like, is that, that seems like a totally different game to me, but I've never done it. So I don't know if that's true or not. Well, you're kind of, you know, when you're up there playing, you want everyone to play along with you. Uh, and you you do play along with other people. And if and you expect it to go both ways a little bit. And some nights it doesn't. Some nights mm. somebody's just on one, not listening to anybody else. And um, in jam music... You can't really, like, we have microphones. We could talk to each other a little bit on stage, but we don't have this kind of conversation on stage. We have different, like, more technical stuff, like like air traffic control stuff mm. is what we talk about. And maybe setless changes or something like that. We, uh, But when it comes to, like, your opinion of what somebody else was doing in a section of music where there really are no rules and really there is no wrong or right, then... You knock if you're mad about something, you got to bottle that in for the whole show, and then at the end of the show, literally spewing it out at somebody is the worst thing you could possibly do. And a lot of bands enact the let's just not let's just make a rule, don't talk about it, you know. And uh, that rule works great. I got to say that rule works awesome. We still do that in the biscuits to this day. And what I learned from the podcast, I learned for me, you know. And I don't try mm-hmm. and. You know, I might point out to other guys in the band, hey, I heard this on the podcast. It's awesome. You should do that again. We have that conversation. It's a very constructive conversation. 
and as well, um, and people like that conversation. And as well, those guys listen to the podcast too when they get around to having a free opportunity and they'll pick out the stuff that they like. So, you know, it's kind of like the podcast, in it being a podcast that everybody kind of consumes it, you know, in small groups or alone, that it is kind of individual for everyone, including me as the host. Yeah, that makes sense. Well, that, okay, so let, we're going to get into the actual interview now, you know, 15 minutes later. Um, I do want to say, I want to give a quick plug for our newest Osiris podcast, Eric Krasno Plus One, which Matt has done a really great job of editing the the last episode that came out was Chris Robinson. And I think by the time this comes out, the Emily King episode will be out, but Matt, you're doing a great job. And I hope you're, hope you're enjoying uh, listening to those conversations before everyone else does. That's actually the best part of it. I mean, it's like, I, I've got this like whole list and I, I don't want to spoil who's coming up, but there's like some big, big names that uh, people that I've loved for so long and like getting to hear these conversations raw unedited before anybody else does. It's like, I feel like it's like my, my little secret. Um, but I love letting them out in the world and the reaction that everybody's getting. I mean, it seems like, the, you know, huge, huge uh, positive reaction from the, the music community. Um, the most amazing thing is like, he, I think like Kraz knows everybody in the music biz. Like it's crazy. Like the reach he has of, of, uh, different people. Um, so it's like, you know, the, the list of people that we've seen as upcoming guests, it's like the rock world, the jam world, the, um, hip hop world, you know, lots of different places. So I think there's going to be something for everybody, uh, coming up pretty soon. Yeah. His career has uh, touched him in, through a lot of different circles and it's paying off here with this pretty great show. I've, I've really enjoyed it. John, you 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 have a similar experience. I mean, I feel like everyone who plays at these festivals and you know opens for each other and stuff, like kind of everyone kind of knows everyone else, right? Yeah, I mean, you you know more about the person in a backstage hang perspective than you might even know about their music. Mm. There's so many bands, people I I love hanging out with them. Have no idea what their music sounds like. Don't care. I'm looking forward to the backstage hang. Because that's that's the fun part. You go on stage, you work, you do your job, and you walk backstage, you want to hang out, have some fun. And um, sometimes sitting around and listening to your music with somebody else isn't doesn't ever happen, you know. So <laughs> Right. Right. Well, all right. So let I wanna ask you, John, because I'm in I'm in Upper Derby, Pennsylvania, which which I've heard you talk about before. So I feel like it's a, a perfect place to ask you, like what how did you start playing music? What was the first music you remember listening to? I think the Upper Derby part starts later in the story, but tell us how you got started playing music. I started on a saxophone. I started uh, in the band in school playing the saxophone. My saxophone was the only saxophone in the school. I was the only saxophone player in the school. And the person who had it before me, because, you know, they give it to the whatever nine-year-old wants to play it, uh, left it under the wheel and it got run over by a bus. So... It had a quirkiness to it that I don't know. If, I don't remember how I sounded on it because we didn't do too much recording in those days. But I think the quirkiness was difficult. And then I got a, a lower saxophone and I was playing bass in the orchestra with the band. And we used to do like Pointer Sister songs. And so she works hard for the money and stuff like that. And I would play the on the tenor sax at like age 11, age 12. And it was the best. I, I literally was so happy in that role. And uh, but I think from, you know, you grew up in New Jersey, uh, you know, Eddie Van Halen years, like there's a certain attraction and pull to the electric guitar, to that wild, freeform, electric, crazy guitar playing. 
And I was I was caught by that, transfixed by that when I was, you know, five or so. So about 14, grabbed a guitar. And um, and then I had like a year where like after I had the guitar, like a year later and I was doing my lessons and blah, blah, blah. And all my wisdom teeth had to get pulled out one at a time for like four months. So like one, oh, it would be like one month we yank one, one month we yank one, and so I was literally in the basement. It's really crazy because my mom used to give me a little bit of whiskey to swirl around. It's just like I don't know with, with the way they used to do it back then, folks. I wasn't drinking stuff, but it would just numb your mouth a little bit, and then I would run scales on the guitar constantly. And that was like a little bit of stuff that I did back in the day. But I still like having having a really good knowledge of, of playing the scales of the guitar and the technique of the guitar and being able to play scales here and here and here and not be playing off of like a pattern, which is what a lot of guys do. Really, uh, really made it so there weren't that many guitar players that had that skill set. And I, I discovered a guy named Trey Anastasio who was doing jam band shows and was in a little jam band and they were they were like not quite as big as the spin doctors at the time and and he knew all the scales too and he knew them twice as good as I did if not 10 times better and he knew them forward backwards he knew them with different chords he knew them in different ways he could use them to make the band do different things and i was just like wow this is this is great and that was a that was a good connection for me too as a kid did it come easy to you? Did you feel like it was like the picking up the guitar? Was it like this feels natural or was it like or was it like a labor to figure it out? Uh, I I mean there's there's some, you got to fight through some stuff to get your technique good, but I think it was pretty pretty out the gate. I wish yeah. I I wish I had a piano stage in there and I never did that. I didn't do that till 2 years ago. I didn't mm-hmm. like focus on the piano till a couple of years ago. So uh, how did you get hip to fish? Where did that, who, who introduced you and when did you first get to see them? Uh, well, I think I saw them at the, at the marquee in New York, which was like, I think I wore a sweater and was 14 and it was a 21 plus club and it was literally 200 people in what is like a, a parking spot with the stage at the end of it. And I passed out during the show because it was so hot and there was this, the air was so thick. <laughs> and I was too young oh, wow. for that shit. And I fell on the ground and I went over to the side of the room and sat in the corner. And I think they played Buried Alive, which I was just, I was watching Buried Alive and I was like, that's the coolest thing I ever heard. And um, so to me, it was a positive experience, but going to the concert was never my strong suit and still isn't to this day. I'm better backstage. I'm better on stage. Once I get into the crowd, I start like, I, I don't know. I, it just, I don't get that great crowd work that, you know, you would think, but it, it, so I did that. The, I used to go to high school like most people and I wouldn't take the bus to high school. I convinced one of the upperclassmen to drive me, and uh, so he would pick me up on the way and then he went to UVM when he graduated and anybody who went to UVM would come back. And so I would see him when he came home and he would give me bags full of these cassette tapes filled with this wicked jazz fusion from Vermont. So I had a direct line to those guys when they were a little bar. I mean, we honestly, we did not know what, the, what was going to happen to them. We just knew they were great. We used to argue about who was better uh, 
the drummer of the Spin Doctors, who's a great drummer, or Fishman. We used to have that argument for hours while we were like learning how to shotgun a beer and stuff like that. <laughs> I could see having that argument. I saw the Spin Doctors a few times in the uh, the way way back, and uh, they were they were they were not a bad band. Um, but we are here to talk about fish um, <laughs> for sure. So uh, you saw the marquee, and what was that? Probably ninety or so. I don't have those dates in front yeah. of me. my 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 fish companion or whatever's way over there. Um, and then saw the marquee, uh, and then I saw Arrowhead Ranch. I was too young to be at Arrowhead Ranch too. <laughs> uh, I was I was fifth wheeling at Arrowhead Ranch, so like I was going to Arrow Ranch with Arrowhead Ranch with my two buddies, and we were going to camp. They didn't tell me that they were bringing these other two girls with them, and like I, we were too young, we were like fifteen or something. We we didn't go anywhere with girls at the time. And then next thing I know, these guys are hanging out with girls the whole time. So and they were like, you know, they they wouldn't even tell me what they were doing, and I was just kind of like. <laughs> completely ostracized from the group in a way. And I went out and there was nobody there at Area Ranch. You know, it was, it was, it was, it was just like me and like 200 other people or something. Like you would stand and there was plenty of dancing room and, but it was a great show. The horns, I met Mike Gordon randomly. It was, it was, uh, it was a pretty seminal show for me as a musician because they were just doing things that you just, there was no pop band in the world doing anything close to it. And yes. I was kind of hip to it. You know, I, I don't know if I could have pulled it off, you know, if I was to dissect it at the time. But I was hip to the fact that they were doing stuff and I could guess what it might be. Yeah, they were, I mean, they were a very different band from what they would become, obviously. They were very focused, rehearsed, tight, tight band. And Arrowhead, uh, I'd like to hear about this place. So I know that... Um, 91 was about the last year they had shows. They started hosting shows in the 80s and they had, you know, big, big ish shows like the Blues Traveler played there, Spin Doctors played there, some like hardcore bands and some other like Murphy's Law and uh, some of those other bands. But a lot of widespread panic played there that summer as well. So they had a big summer of the like pre horde uh, jam bands. Um, and then they, they closed. Apparently they tried to reopen last year and had some shows. Um, not a great time to open a festival location, as it turns out. Um, but it's not that it's not that big, but it's cool little spot. Uh, amenities. I mean, was it was it just like a stage stuck in a field, or was it uh, was there anything kind of built up there? I, I don't really have a firm picture of the place. So I'm just wondering if you remember yeah. any of that. Oh yeah, I totally remember it. I mean, look, you drove in between these trees, and then it was like 200 feet of grass, and then woods, and that was kind of uphill. And everybody parked in stacks along that 200 feet. And then you went like a thousand feet and the parking lot was done. And then it made this like natural swooping little bowl that continued down to the right. And there was a stage over there. And then Fish was on the stage. I think some other acts played, but they were like Vermont local acts, I think. And then behind that was like a house of some sort, which is where I had snuck back there at one point because I was bored. And then Mike was walking around. That's where I met Mike. And then, uh, and then I think there was some vending over to the left of stage, and then we were camping up in the in the trees, like a little bit in the trees, and we had a little camping spot, a little fire area, and um, nobody would talk to me because I was way too young to be there, you know. And my <laughs> friends were all off with their girls that they were with. I mean, to put it in perspective, we were we tried to go to Amy's farm. 
And uh, my friend Tim Larie's mom got wind of what we were doing and called all the moms and canceled our trip. Damn. Were you doing the uh, the sleepover swap deal where, like, you know, I'll be sleeping at Dave's house and he'll be sleeping at... Yeah. Yeah, okay. yeah for three days. Yeah, and, and <laughs> but we needed a car. We needed our big brothers to give us IDs and stuff so we could get... Like, we had to go to Maine. Like, I lived in North Jersey. Arrowhead Ranch was pretty close. We were able to go to Arrowhead Ranch, like, may, pull that off fairly safely, be back in time. But Maine was a whole nother story for us. That was like, we had to really lie through our teeth to go to that show. And Tim blew it. I was fine. My mom didn't give a shit. My mom was like, you go have fun at the fair for three days. And, you know, she had no idea. I hope Tim's mom knows that they prevented you from seeing an epic Epic fish show. Jeez, Tim's mom. I know. So if we if, if we advance it a, a couple years, um, you've uh, you're a fish fan. You go head off to school at the University of Pennsylvania. You meet up with Mark, Aaron, and Sammy. What bonds you guys? I mean, you guys all jam band fans um, who eventually get more into the electronic music thing, or was there kind of like a mishmash of your musical tastes that kind of led to the the sound of the Disco Biscuits early on? I think we all liked Fish a lot. I think uh, a lot of the bands at the time, there was a lot of cool bands around at the time. Primus and Sausage were putting out, Les was putting out albums with those two projects. Uh, Sausage is a band. I loved that album. I don't know. I don't, I don't know why. It's just great. And then, um, you know, we were all getting into jazz at the same time too. So we would hang out and we would listen to this different stuff. Sammy was a wicked bass player, like crazy bass player. And him and I lived very close to each other. So we used to jam all the time. And then like tacking on the other guys was easy. And Sammy moved to drums because he knew both instruments really well. So the, it sounds like the, the electronic thing kind of maybe came later after you guys had played. Because I know when I look back on early Disco Biscuits shows, there's a lot of set lists that are like 50% dead covers, 50% fish covers. Um, for a while, I mean, like even, you know, going into like 97, 98 or so, you guys had, had advanced to playing bigger places like Irvine Auditorium and stuff like that. And you, and you were still doing this. At what point does the electronic influence kind of come in? Cause like in the nineties, it, 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 it's probably difficult for younger people to understand, but like electronic music was like a very, very underground thing. It's not like it is today where you'd hear it, it's stamp on pop music and all that kind of stuff. So like, was it one of you guys that kind of brought it to the others or it was just kind of a natural, like, this is what's going on in the underground right now. Well, I lived in a house in Pennsylvania that was filled with foreign people, and they all listened to electronic music from London underground all day long. And they all had British accents, but were from Hong Kong, and they <laughs> all listened to the Orb and Orbital and Hallucinogen and all day long. They, if you played them a song with a guitar in it, they'd be like, why are you playing me this? And so I had a, and those, and we rehearsed in that house for a while. So everyone in the band got a full dose of those guys. And cause everybody was like, we'd all hang out. We all knew each other really well. It was a great scene uh, in Philly with the parties we threw were terrific. And Aaron got a keyboard called the JP 8000, which had a lot of the sounds that were being used in that music. And Sammy listened to that stuff a lot because Sammy's just a music music junkie at heart. He just listens to everything. And so when Sammy started playing techno beats and Aaron started using the sounds, me and Mark would find different ways to play in that music. And that's basically what me and Mark do. We play in a million different ways inside of what is t standard techno music, which is kind of what makes it different. 
And you were at this, when were you composing some of this stuff? Like the, you, did you write some of the, the songs that you wrote that were, that ended up being longer compositions at the same time? Cause it sounds like you were like, I don't know if those were parallel, like you're experimenting with tons of different stuff, but then you're still writing sort of complicated compositions at the same time. Uh, I guess 95, I mean, I've been writing music my whole life, but 95 to 2000, I fancied myself a composer and I made no money at all. And I literally ate ramen noodles and walked around the backyard (laughs) singing songs like a lunatic. And ironically, those are the songs that everybody loves. So it's like, (laughs) that's my secret store. That's my way of doing it. Um, That was what worked for me, really. But But it it sounds like a lot of influences were, I mean, like, you were you were listening to a lot of different stuff all the time, but you were able to kind of compartmentalize because those early compositions, Hot Air Balloon, like that kind of stuff was not influenced by that other music that we were just talking about. That was sort of just composition. I mean, all that stuff was, it, it's all in there, you know? Mm-hmm. We, were, we were listening to a lot of jazz. We listened to a lot of electronic music. We, uh, we listened to a lot of Fish. We listened to a lot of Grateful Dead. Um, and it's all in the like hot air balloon era stuff. Mm-hmm. Although I was very much trying, I was approaching the songwriting like I was a classical composer. So it's a lot of written out parts and um, like classical type song transitions. So it's a mm-hmm. little less groovy, you know, and it's a little more like the bass line sings more than grooves type of stuff. Yeah, it's, it's, it's funny because like from the Fish perspective, you just talked about like those are the songs that everybody loves, but Fish kind of has the same thing. It's like the early stuff that Trey did with Gamehenge, like sitting down and like seriously composing stuff. That's the stuff that everybody wants. Um, yeah. And it's, it's funny, like did you guys, did you see any like pushback or anything when you did start to introduce the electronic elements? Because like I know when I was getting into the Disco Biscuits, this would have been like probably like 2000 or so. I was telling these guys earlier, um, like I probably listened to uncivilized area first and then, and was like, Oh wow, this is like cool. This is, you know, kind of in line with what I'm listening to. I like the jamminess. And then the next thing I did was download a live show and go, Oh, these guys play run like hell. And I'm a huge Pink Floyd fan. I'm going to listen to this. Well, 35 minutes of dancing grooves later, I was like, is this the same band or did I get like a mislabeled track or something? So like, (laughs) was there like a, like a conscious shift there where you guys like, all right, this is what we're going to do now. We're going to play this way or just happen organically? I just think we're bad rule followers. I just think the band, like everybody in the band is super smart and could have a huge Wall Street career and be loaded, but nobody wants to put on a tie. Nobody wants to wake (laughs) up at seven o'clock in the morning and nobody wants to follow your rules about how a jam should go. They just don't. And I I don't blame them. Every time we try and do really structured stuff in a biscuit world, you know, we might take people get instincts and they make good decisions on stage and we can talk about that. But we, we can't go into a jam with a plan. Uh, it just nobody likes it. And that's just that's just the biscuits. What are you going to do? You know, and it does lead to these really, really long jams that happen all every single night because it's hard when everybody's coming into the jam with. This like, okay, I'm, I want to do something special. I want to do something crazy. Every jam, they say that, and every jam is going to go into this huge place. So a 30-minute run like hell for us is just another run like hell. 
And, and when you, like, when you say, you know, you don't necessarily have a plan, like you mean kind of within the jam, right? Because I, I think you guys ha- kind of have a set list and you know, like, all right, at this point we're going to go from, you know, a C to B to Vasilios or something like that. Whatever happens in the middle, maybe we make it in 10 minutes. Maybe it takes us 40 minutes to get there, but we know point A and point B. Exactly. But like it, how to get there, the, the years that we planned it out, which was when we first started out, the plans were only 50-50 good, you know, because <laughs> music isn't like us talking to each other. That's not music. Like I can talk to you about how to do something. But when we get on stage and we're playing it musically, suddenly the words I said don't help you at all, you know, and they mm-hmm. might even confuse you. So I think it, it, it's a coin flip when you walk on stage, whether the words that you guys talked about are going to help or hurt. And for us, we just got sick of the coin flip. And we just like, you know what? Don't even bother. I'm going to go up there and do some cool stuff. You do some cool stuff. Let's just end up at a CDB at some point in time. What is a city without its music? The legacy of the New York Philharmonic is incredible. Nearly two centuries of history. That's a lot of music and a lot of stories. I was sitting on stage for the very first time thinking, I can't quite believe this is happening. Join me, Jamie Bernstein, as we explore the history of the New York Philharmonic. It's the NY Phil story made in New York, a podcast about a city, its people, and their orchestra. Listen wherever you get podcasts. All this talk about jams is making me want to hear some jams. You guys want to uh, dig into some some music now? I, th- I think we should. And I, as I mentioned earlier, uh, one of the hallmarks of Touchdowns All Day, which I do think is a kind of first of its kind in the in the music podcast world, you 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 narrate a lot of jams. So we're going to do that here for some fish jams and a, and a disco biscuits jam. So are you up for that, John? For sure. All right, let's do it. We're going to let's let's get into the first the first jam, Matt. Should we do it? Let's do it. RJ, what are we listening to here? We are listening to something that you recommended, which happens to be like one of my favorite fish jams of all time, which is the November 17th, 1997 Ghost Jam and Pan. This is good. Some people have probably heard this already. With the trajectory of the band, John, did you guys, was there a point at which you kind of started seeing Fish a lot less or like tracking with their career a lot less because you were into your own stuff? I had to cut myself off personally. I, I went home. We had played a little tiny bar in in on Pine Street in Philly nobody was there and I recorded every show and would go back and listen to them this is before the podcast I would just do the work and I ripped a tray lick in the middle of a jam there's a clear tray lick and then at that point I was like this is bad I can't do that you know what I mean <laughs> so I cut myself off of listening to fish which is a bummer and I, I, I was sad about that um, but I felt like I had to do it for the sake of my own development as a musician 
But yeah, fish got huge like right when I decided to do that, and everybody was going to stadiums and then mm-hmm. hunt the great went, and I couldn't go to any of it because I was like, I can't do that because I'll I'll absorb it too much, and uh, and uh, so there's it's yeah some things are cool something it was a bit of a bummer, unfortunately, but it had to be done. I think it's probably about the time that this jam happened. This is like yes three months after the great one. So. Yeah. I, ironically, Ghost is that song to me. Ghost is mm. the song that they put out that was a huge hit a- after I had cut myself off. So when you said Ghost, I was like, oh, man, here's the song <laughs> that everybody loves that I never got it. I never got a chance to bond with it. You know, what do you what do you hear going on here? Let's check it out for a sec. See what they're doing. I, mean, I love what Mike's doing here. I love the, but you know, Mike and I talked about this at one point that, like, the way he plays the middle and he leaves the bass out and he goes and plays the middle is something you don't hear anyone do ever, except for him. So I love it when he does this stuff, and they always go to such interesting places when he sets those kind of loops up. Talked to uh, we talked to Mark about I guess it was a couple weeks after this Fish played the Spectrum and he got to hang out with Mike, uh, which eventually became kind of the genesis of his side project Star Kitchen, um, playing more soul kind of stuff. So it's interesting how you guys had this like period of time where like you were like I need to back off and he was almost like I need to like double down on it. Yeah, I think that was a weird thing with me and Mark is he would always go to all the fish shows and I'd be like, dude, you're going to get into it too much and you're going to play too fishy. <laughs> but I I was a good couple years into fish before everybody else. So there was a lot to learn from the composition and the jamming and the musicality. And I think I'd spent a couple years learning it. I needed to go to Stravinsky I needed to go to Coltrane, Miles Davis. I needed to do some different things. But Mark was like, Fish was like, he was in that stage where where I was a couple years earlier, and it was just like, you know, what, what was I going to say at that point? I feel like they're trying to change keys here. I feel like they're trying to go somewhere. Yeah, Trey is, hasn't left his loop behind, but he's pushing past it. He's doing something a little more out front. They, they, it sounds like they modulated to major, and I think what you were pointing out about Mike playing not the root kind of like led to that, you know, that mm-hmm. middle, that middle playing you called it. Yeah, he went to some other low note and tried to retonicize, and I don't think it took, but I think they're still going for it. This feels like riding the wave. Is Trey like riding a wave here, John? Is this like... Well, I think he thinks he thinks like he wants to kind of stay in what he's doing because you can hear him ride the wah pedal through the lick. Mm-hmm. So he wants to stay in what he's doing. So he probably thinks the notes he's playing are a little out. And to get the true effect of them, 
He needs to hold Pat. Mm-hmm. Is that like the uh, the Hendrix thing? You say, well, I play a wrong note. Just Maybe it's not Hendrix. I play a wrong note. I just play it again. That's Prince, I think, to make it the right one. Yeah, I think wrong note's a little strong, but uh, but yeah, no. <laughs> I think he knows. What, I think he's playing exactly what he wants to play here. I, I think I do the too. music, the music. He needs Paige to come around. Yeah, Paige is hanging on that piano, just kind of. Yeah, and I don't know if Paige isn't coming around on purpose or not. You never know. Um, he has changed what he's doing. Yeah. Weird because that note. <laughs> Paige is kind of doing the thing Mike was doing a couple minutes ago. He's playing up around like the fourth, the fifth, giving it that suspended kind of like lift. Okay, I think Trey wants to go up one step. But he wants to go with the band that last step. There, he kind of teased it for a second. He's trying to get them to peek together. Yeah. He's got one more step. He needs it to be together. And what's cool about this jam is they never get there. Yeah. They could be giving up right now. Maybe they, you know. Yeah, it seems like it. <laughs> so, John, you guys, I feel like you guys have always been so good at the building to peaks and multiple peaks. Like, what I hear in that jam is Trey is, like, pushing to a major key peak. Is that, like, did you... Do you see that as like a goal sometimes when you're when you guys are jamming? Like, do you see that as like we're building to a peak, or does that happen more organically? Because I hear it so much in disco business jams, like often multiple times per song. It's it's always available to to take the energy of the jam and in a, literally a minute go to a peak. Uh, the peak will be relative to what you got stored up, and it's very universal. You can play that peak in Japan, and it doesn't matter. I mean, they've been playing that peak. Since Mozart, uh, I mean, beside, I mean, of all the classical guys, they're all doing that same peak with the exception of Tchaikovsky who did some other stuff. But that peak is there. Fish does that peak. The Dead did that peak. And, and the Dead more did the peak like in the goddamn do I declare, like those parts. <laughs> they yeah. put it in the song and less in the jam, but it's in the jams too. It's just very universal. It's how music works. That's interesting. Yeah. I feel like a friend of mine who I used to see Disco Biscuit shows with would always say like Fish has like a build and a peak and with Biscuit's jams they were like often multiple peaking opportunities but maybe that was just the perspective of the people playing that it's like the always available thing is something interesting that I've that I haven't thought about before but that just might be me not being a musician. Well, Fish had the <laughs> whole like white light thing that they that they do with the peak so they had this peak experience, like a full arena experience that was really well put together and very smart and done a million different ways well. It's just crazy how many 
ways those guys did that well. And we learned from that in a major way, you know? Mm -hmm. And so we draw from that. Uh, we don't do the structure that they do. For us, it's looser, but we had all of their jams to learn from, you know? It, it seems like, like getting back to what we were talking about a, a second ago and like your, the, the approach to jamming, like Fish's goal is almost like these peak moments or things that come around that are unexpected. Whereas you guys, like if you're saying, okay, we're going to get from point A to point B, peaks may happen as a part of that in what we're doing. The way that somebody described Disco Biscuits jamming to me very early on is like, think about it like a, um, like a DJ, right? You've got like one track on your left deck. You got a track on your right deck. You got to figure out how to get from one side to the other. And that's going to involve like matching up the rhythms, figuring out when to add the low end from one track and, and transition that into the other one and like somehow get the keys aligned and stuff like that. Is that too much of an oversimplification or do you guys like kind of take that approach? I love that, that metaphor. And it, the, one of the things that that metaphor spells out to me uh, is the biscuits are often jamming from one song to another. We're rarely, we, we have these things called standalones. I'm sure every band does um, where you just play the same song. You start the jam in one song, you end in the same song. You don't necessarily go anywhere. Uh, we rarely do that nowadays, if ever. Uh, it just, we like going different places with it. Fans like it. So it is a lot like DJing from one song to another. We've done some DJ switch type of jams where like we'll we'll get into something we like and then we'll go one band member at a time and rotate out of that into something else where there okay. isn't really a jam. It's just like a rotation. You bring your line in, I bring my line in, another guy brings in his line, change the drums, and then boom, it's like a revolving door. Suddenly yeah. you're just in another jam. So we do a lot of, we've done a lot of experiments like that over the years and we do go for exactly that vibe all the time. Mm. Should we uh, move on to our next jam? This one's a little different and a couple years later. Um, and I'm going to just tell everybody it's uh, 9.14.99, the Boise bag. This is my birthday, everybody. So Fish was celebrating <laughs> my birthday. I, I not, in, not in 1999. They were. They were. It was my birthday. But you weren't born that day. No, no. I was moving in with my future wife that day. Uh, <laughs> damn, I was about to steal you your go. identity. This is interesting because 99, a lot of people would talk, call this kind of Fish's danciest year, right? When they got into these sort of just like almost kraut rocky kind of grooves that they just like chipped away at the same thing over and over and over again for, for a long time. I'm not disputing you, Matt, but it's funny. We, we danced our asses off to them five years earlier, too. It wasn't a problem, but and we kept doing it through this. I mean, this kind of feels like hip-hop to me a little bit. The, if you put, like, a hip-hop 808 underneath this, it's kind of like that poppy thing. It's just a little bit groovier. It's about a month later I saw them play Get Jiggy with it, right? Or was that a year earlier? I can't keep track anymore. <laughs> that was a year, year earlier. earlier. Yeah, it was, you know, it was the good Hampton. Yeah, not the, not the less good Hampton. Hey, Jay-Z was into it when he played with them. There you go. No bigger compliment than that. I really like what Fishman's doing here. I like the like thing on the hat. It's just so slimy, you know? It's so much like it's kind of like an electric beat. 
cut into the middle of the jam. It's cool how active his work is while Trey is just holding these long sustains. Oh, back in the day when we used to argue Fishman versus Aaron Comas, I was always Team Fishman. <laughs> but it's because I like this kind of stuff. I like Fishman, how he, how he like is able to move the beat around effortlessly without... And he takes you on a little mini journey all the time, kind of like right now. Yeah. So it's interesting here because Mike's playing like a one, two, three, four, and Fishman's doing a one, two, three, like almost like a waltz. And they're doing that. I don't know if they're doing that on purpose or if they just ended up here. But I like how Mike's sticking in his rhythm and Fish is sticking in his rhythm. Yeah, I mean, we're a ways into this. It's a long, long track, but we started it kind of in the middle. And here's a super peak right here. Yeah. Yeah, it's weird. Fishman almost sounds like he's playing in a different time signature because he keeps moving his snare hits around. Like you can't can't quite grasp where it's gonna happen. like Mike's pulling him it's into a rock groove right now. And Trey is obviously, but mm -hmm. Mike's doing it. Mike's nice and tasty about it. <laughs> Trey just <laughs> Trey just went from peak to full snarl. Yeah. Which is, you know, guitar players. What are you going to do? <laughs> <laughs> I love this beat. Yeah. <laughs> That's just, this is, Trey and Fish are nasty right now. It feels like Paige was trying to catch up, but then he caught up. He's, he's you know, definitely like, there now. He's there. It's funny because when Fish came out of the three and him and Trey got all gnarly, Paige went to the three. Mm. So is there some is it was that on purpose? Is there something going on there? Were they were they trading off who's on the three in that jam? Maybe. could not be much more straight ahead right here. Yeah. Are the, is Trey going to hit the melody? Is that coming? Are we going to get it? Almost sounds like spooky, though. Yeah. Yeah. He won't play it, though. <laughs> That'd be great. 
I've heard him do it. It's it's great when he does it. He really yeah, does. Six years earlier, he definitely would have done it. Right. Right. Yeah. <laughs> does it feel like Mike? Does, is Mike driving this jam? I feel like he's the center of it here. Yeah. Now Mike's on the threes. Yeah. One, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three. Wow. Fun. Wow. Should we uh should we listen to some disco biscuits and get a different pers- I think we perspective? Should. Let's let's do it. So so Barbara, so this is so that was September of ninety nine, which you may have been yeah. you may have been in exile from Fish at that point, but we wanted to play a, a spring ninety nine disco biscuits jam. So do you do you know what was going on at that point? Where was that? Where was that show? That was in Boise. That was in Boise. I want to go back and listen to that. That was a really that was great. I mean, that's super hot fish right there, as far as I'm concerned. I mean, they're trading threes. Fishman's playing out of his mind. Trey's just tearing through the crazy part. And Paige was was just like rock the whole time. Like he he has an unsung hero role in this band that I think I really appreciate it because I know how important it is for the harmonies to be uh, moved in a way that makes sense and is correct. I know how powerful it is when that happens. And he's just kind of the, he's the archetype for that type of stuff. He's so, I don't know any other keyboard player that really does it like he does. I'm going to go listen to that show. And now are we going to compare it to 99 Biscuits? I love this. This is going to be fun. We're going to pair it. We're going to pair it. Go to a similar moment in history. This is, we're going to go to the wetlands yes. in uh, spring of 99. So this is uh, May 1st, 1999 at the wetlands. This is from uh, Above the Waves. Also great drumming. Killer drumming. John, you're not doing... You're not doing much here. What what would have been going through your mind? Well, I used to do this a lot more than I do now. Uh, it's just kind of like take a background role and let the music breathe a little bit. Because people play a lot of notes. And you can hear in this jam, Mark's playing a lot of notes. Aaron's playing a lot of notes. So if I come in and also play a lot of notes, it turns into cabbage soup real quick. Yeah. So here, what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to play an accent, the drum beat that Sammy's playing, so that he can continue playing it with confidence. No matter how crazy the jam gets. Because I think the jam's about to get nuts. So I'm kind of playing kungas on guitar right now, is what I'm thinking. Mm. Is it James Brown had a theory that if you were not playing the solo, you were a rhythm? Yes. Yeah, hundred percent. Yeah, all those interlocking yeah. parts. You mentioned the drumming when we first started this off. Is there a difference in the feeling of playing with Alan versus what it was like with Sammy? A huge difference. Totally different drummer. Unbelievably so. Totally different drummer. Um, they just have totally different ways of building the jam and climax in the jam and so 
uh, certain things work great with one that don't work great with the other and vice versa. And we have fans that are, you know, love the old Sammy stuff like this. And then we have fans who think that this is 1.0 and we're a 3.0. So it depends on who you talk to. But I, I love them both. I love the way Sammy brings the jam to the top. It's so, like, open and symbol and less snare and less driving. And when Alan brings the jam to the top, it's more like surgical precision and just an onslaught of just incredible drumming. Yeah, that's interesting that you say because I, I probably would have said the same. Alan's like a drum machine. He's like just yeah. spot on time all the time. Or Sammy had like feels like there's a little bit more of a uh, looseness, though he's like on top of it as well. Well, Sammy was just a natural drummer. He wasn't a a, a practiced. I mean, he practiced, but he wasn't a drummer of military precision like Alan is. Sammy, you just you gave him a pair of sticks and put him behind the kit, and you're like, man, he's actually pretty good. <laughs> and, said he was uh, a great bass player too. Is he yeah. one of those guys, one of those disgusting people who could play anything if they tried? Sammy's a great guitar player, incredible yeah. bass player, and incredible drummer. You know, so that's just Sammy. What are you gonna do? Guy can play yeah, everything. Good he's, for like, him. he's like Prince with a Jufro. <laughs> <laughs> said to these guys after I listened to this yesterday that I'm certain I had this uh, show on a CD 20 years ago. And I maybe haven't listened to it in most of that time. It's really good. So you hear me here. I'm trying to change the key up a little bit. I think like Trey was doing in that first jam. I can get some takers. <laughs> she like it. Yeah. Huge fan. She likes it a couple times during this jam. She was apparently standing right by the taper. The wetlands was a small space, man. Everybody was right by the taper. Isn't it crazy, the whole taper thing, how just wild that was? I would have never heard of, of fish at all if it wasn't for the tapers. God yeah. bless the tapers. I'd be an accountant right now or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> you guys, John, at this point, you guys are hitting every note available between the four of you guys. And now I, I hear a lot more space in your jams. Is that like... Do you think that's conscious? Some of it has to do with the size of the room. Um, in a little room like Wetlands, if you play like bebop style jam band stuff like this, um, you don't notice how fast it is because the room's so small. You're just it's just energy, and you're just forcing energy into your hands and tearing it out in your fingertips. But when you get into the bigger rooms, if you play a lot of notes, you hear it bounce back off the the wall a minute later mm. while you're trying to play something else and it gets to be a little cacophonous so you gotta kind of lay off of it which is I think a big reason why Fish went to their funky style when they went up to arenas because the fusion stuff just doesn't fly in a room that big mm. wow. it works in this room yeah wetlands you I know whenever we go into a little room for whatever reason, I know what this is going to happen because everyone loves playing like this. 
It's super <laughs> fun. You know, but it's not uh Yeah, it's just this is when you know, this is just young, crazy, flying, ripping music right here. Yeah. I trust I trust you guys had some great times playing at the Wetlands. That was I had a great time seeing shows there. The great little room. Yeah, classic room. With that bus, remember the bus? Yeah, remember the bus. So remember the walls sweating times, a couple of okay. shows. I feel like I saw Trey and the Dude of Life at the Wetlands once. Seems very likely. <laughs> Re- reaching for another modulation there? It's the recording or the the compression through Zoom or what, but Mark's tone sounds really swampy or something in here. It's really like, yeah, that's on the recording. So he's he's got okay. something going on, some sort of like little little bit of overdrive or something. I dig it. I dig that overdrive. I think he was he in '99. He used to go for this big growly bass. Um, it's just very powerful thing to do in the room. A lot of, uh, you know, a lot of vibrations. Probably doing something like that. I don't know if it translated to tape that great because it was so low end and the tapers have those little microphones, but mm-hmm. he used yeah. to do that a lot. He had a bunch of excellent growly pedals. I'm trying to talk him into like finding the re-release of those pedals and bring them back. I think he, <laughs> he's working on it a little bit. Uh, you know, get Matt, get the Shep source for this one. Maybe it'll have uh, the best. It'll have the better bass response. Yeah. <laughs> so you're bringing it back to the theme here. Yeah. So was it waves the whole time? This was just standalone. This was just yeah. waves. This was just waves. Did you guys ever like for something like this? You 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 brought it back to the waves theme here. Um, I know like. 
in my band, I mean, we're not, you know, we're like a fraction of the jamming ability, but we'll a lot of times say like, all right, you know, we know where we're going to go. And like, you're the point person, like nobody goes there until you do that. Did you guys ever kind of getting back to the planning thing, say like, all right, you know, John's going to bring us back into waves here. Was it really just fly by the seat of your pants all the time? I mean, I think there's pros and cons to both. If the band gets to the melody section, their chords and stuff, before you're ready to play the melody, then, you know, you got some solos to play. You you can have a little fun with it. Um, But if you get there right before the band does, it freaks the whole room out. So we're kind (laughs) of always going for that. But I don't mind it when they get there before me. It just sometimes... Sometimes I don't have, sometimes I want to do more with the jam and they're there. The, the, I don't mind that situation. The situation that's the worst is when I go there and they're not ready at all, which mm-hmm. happens a lot too, because they might just be on some other planet. Like I'm playing moon music. I'm playing jamming on the moon. And I'm like playing the lick to end the jam. And <laughs> That's all right. It's a risk. The, the tapers were just noted as a, as a uh, you know, oh, and, John teased it, but they kept jamming for another twenty yes. minutes. You know, that, that's yes. basically Trey. That's basically Trey's world, from what I can tell. It's yeah. like everyone's like jamming. He's like, no, 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 we're playing a different song now. Like every, <laughs> everyone, yeah. stop. Yeah, um, but he, I think they're less democratic at times. Uh, uh, certainly in three point they yeah. are. Uh, they they will. Oh, Trey's ready. Okay. And yeah, it's true. They'll just go that's there. <laughs> Number line. Yeah. You know, it's 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 democracy versus efficiency. You know, it's a constant balance, and uh, it's always changing a little bit. But the biscuits are very democratic, just because uh, it just is the way we are. It's cool. So, I, I when Fish took a break in two thousand, and then they and then split up in two thousand four. There was like a uh, to music fans and like the jamband.coms of the world. There, there looked like there was a void to be filled by bands like yours. Did you guys consciously? leap into that space or i'm sure you were aware of the maybe potential uh for audience opportunities and things did you guys make any sort of move to consciously make any move to to fill that void i mean we probably should have uh (laughs) you know we had just lost our drummer and we had to replace our drummer and i was kind of burnt on the whole idea of of traveling around the country and just playing guitar in a jam band. Like for me, it was, it was a lot. I'm not a great traveler. So unpacking and packing the same suitcase was starting to create a little bit of a, like a mental phobia in my head. And I feel like (laughs) we were really famous in Philadelphia and it had a weird effect that we were in Philadelphia working in Philadelphia and it just had a weird effect on the band, I think, in general. So we probably should have filled that void more aggressively and done a bunch of stuff, but it just wasn't in the cards for us because we had we had already gone through seven, eight years, like a, a Beatles career worth right. of music stuff. And, you know, we needed a hiatus at that point as well, frankly. Yeah, I was just uh, curious whether what your view was of that. So that's, you know, you guys of the were fish clear- hiatus. Yeah. Well, of your position when that came up. So clearly you guys were on your own trip and honestly, that's 
where you should have been is dealing with your own thing where rather than worrying about fish. If you guys were the ones who uh, were the stockbrokers and get up at seven in the morning, then you might've been more uh, business-like <laughs> about it, but we already, already covered that. But so. I think, I think in 05 and 06, like I saw some shows in, in Sayreville at the Starland ballroom and, you know, Dewey beach, a bunch of places. You guys were, you guys were really, really kicking ass in 20, you know, 2005, 2006. But did you feel like that was like a, uh, a you, we, you were, you we were, still were working that. a lot. Yeah. We, we were working a lot. We we're playing a lot of shows, but I think, um, you know, we had played these giant tours over and over and over again for years and years and years. And I was writing all the time and, and then going back on tour and, my life vanished. I, I didn't know. Nobody knew when I was home or when I wasn't home. I didn't even have a cell phone in 2005. Everyone else in the world did. I had run out of the like all the music that I was writing was like I wasn't really feeling it. The band wasn't feeling the the, the togetherness. We had all the same problems that they had. Um, obviously, they were at it a lot longer. We just had them earlier in our career. Maybe it was the time. Maybe it was the Iraq war or something like that. That you know, maybe it's something like that. We'll blame Bush. Yeah, <laughs> I think it's, I think that's fair. But I you guys, that. you guys still had some really great years after that in in the late two thousands. And then, and I do want to. We have to touch on Camp Bisco, um, because you guys kind of helped create this. What I what I see is like uh, the bridge between jam music and electronic music um you've been doing it since 99 but what what do you see as like the the effect of cambisco on the jam community like do you do you do you feel like you've helped usher in this new i don't know this new kind of set of bands i was told by a bunch of bands that if you wanted to break the northeast you played cambisco that's what i was told while we were making cambisco and I, I don't know if that was a hundred percent true, but before EDC, if you had a, a dance act, Campisco was your gig. If you wanted, like Rusco, Skrillex, um, all those guys were playing. You know, when they were going from here to here in their trajectory of popularity, we had Snoop played Campisco for that same reason. Um, Nas played Campisco for the same reason. Slick Rick played Campisco for that reason. So people knew about wow. it outside of the jam scene, and. Uh, for us, you know, we just like the idea of playing, like having a festival and bringing everybody in and having a cool hang with all the other musicians. Uh, so we were just down with it for that reason. We did a lot, a lot of other festivals too, but it was that chemistry of Camp Bisco, like doing it with everybody else that made it really take off and kind of be on its own. Yeah. I remember like from the fan perspective, I went probably three or four years in a row when it was up at Indian lookout and nice. it was weird because it was like the first couple of years, it was like, you know, maybe five, six, 7,000 people disco biscuits fans and like some DJs that we'd probably be into. I remember like seeing the egg for the first time there and like yes. some great, great stuff like that. But it was like our scene. And all of a sudden it was like, yeah. there's like 25,000 EDM fans and the disco biscuits just happened to be playing at this festival. Like, did you guys anticipate that at all? I mean, look, we were, but we booked Skrillex. We booked Rusco. We booked pretty lights when he was, playing the VIP tent. You know, we booked Bass Nectar. Uh, I don't even know what we booked him at the first year he played. He, I don't know what he did. 
but he was there. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> you know, and he played it every other year since then. And the kind of music that those artists were all playing, we liked. I mean, I like the music that those artists make, frankly. I, I loved Rusko when it came out. It was my favorite shit. I used to DJ that stuff. Um, it was just very cool. We, I don't, I guess it was kind of obvious that it, I felt like it was the new heavy metal. So I felt like nobody was going to do what Metallica ever did again because it's kind of been done really. It was done in the whole seventies and most of the eighties. I feel like, how are you going to redo that? You got to replace Satan with some other God. So where's the other God? I don't know. So we can't do heavy metal anymore. So I felt like dubstep was the same sound for the new 14 year olds, like hard in your face. Doesn't sound like music. Parents hate it. And I check, check, check. Right. So, (laughs) <laughs> I, I wasn't surprised when it happened. And, and you know, Skrillex was kind of the guy that, that really brought it. He really brought the kids out for it. But it was like, it was, it was like having a hit single or something. It was like, you kind of working towards it your whole life. You, you, you hope for it, you hope for it. And then it happens and I'm driving the golf cart around and there's just 35,000 people and tents all this stuff everywhere and it was really really amazing to do that so that was exciting well i'll tell you it's grown to such a thing that i have a 23 year old daughter who i mentioned earlier who is into edm and went to camp bisco last year called me on the way home said dad i like the disco biscuits now so um so not only are you you know, inspiring maybe a younger generation of bands, but you've got a whole other generation of listeners out there, uh, which is which is wild. And yet, you guys are still going and um, writing new stuff. And uh, h- how are you guys dealing with this twenty twenty quarantine business? I mean, look, we were about to have a huge year. We had millions of dollars worth of shows booked. I have, we're putting in, uh, we have a whole pile of new music to play and the the rug just went whoop. And in my career, that's happened so many times. I mean, you know, I just feel like the, there's a lot of situations in our career that like Napster was like the day we wanted to get a record deal we'd walk into the office and Napster was invented the day before. And we just kind of, you know, we deal with those kind of uh, issues. And this year is just the same thing. It's just like, you know, make the best of it. There's nothing we can do about it really. And, um, you know, I'm trying to, to get focused so that when we do come out, I, to me, it's all about like how I feel about myself and how I feel about what I'm writing. And so I'm just trying to focus on that. And when we, when I guess in the fall, we'll get some concerts or something like that. I hope to have just a lot of new stuff and hopefully people will like it. So to me, it's just more time walking in circles, trying to get to that place. Walking around, singing songs in the backyard. Yeah. Although they closed my spot where I do that. So, you know, they, oh, they closed that, that park is closed. So the cops like came over to me and I was like, are you guys going to throw me in jail? And they, they were like, maybe, but they're, bulletproof whatever donut sack on or whatever the fuck it is. I don't know. Barbara, I have to ask. So you guys, you, you toured with and you have seen, I'm sure a lot of bands that have followed in your footsteps. You guys are like veterans of the scene now. 
but your influence on the jam band scene particularly is now like just i think integrated into what newer bands are doing do you do you check out bands like do you do you see your own influence reflected in in some of the bands that are opening for you or the bands that you're seeing in the jam scene cuz i feel like electronica and some of the stuff that we've been talking about now is just like that's part of the jam scene. But, you know, when you guys were coming up, it wasn't. I hear bands all the time. People send me music all the time and be like, oh, listen to this new band. They sound just like you guys. And I listen to that band and I hear fish. I don't hear biscuits. <laughs> you know what I mean? I hear fish in all the young bands. What's missing? What's missing? Like, what, what would, what would, what's missing that makes you not hear biscuits? It's a good question. I, I think it's because... But younger bands like to organize and they like to play things and like the biscuits are are way disorganized. Like we're the free jazz of jam bands. And also like Mark has a certain like he's like a Phil Lesh type of bass player where his approach to the bass is very unique to him. And I don't if you're going to play kind of more bass lines that are more like bass lines, then you're not going to sound that much like the biscuits. Like Mark's sound is is a characteristic and, and integral part of everything that we mm. do. But I totally hear fish every time I hear a band. I don't know why. <laughs> I, it's, it's, it's true, though. Like, I, And I like that. I'm, the nice thing about the podcast is I've been interviewing. I interviewed uh, Pigeons playing ping pong the other day. I'm probably going to interview a bunch of the little bands because I'm going to see them backstage. I might as well hang out with baby, them, right? Baby Biscuits. Baby Biscuits. <laughs> yeah. And I listened to a bunch of their music and it was really great with them. So the podcast is going to be a nice bonding tool for me and the younger generation. I'm excited about that. That's cool. That's nice. cool. Do you take yeah. any pride in like knowing that you influence some of these guys or do, is that not like something that crosses your mind? Uh, it's cool. It's cool. I like it. Right. <laughs> it is cool. Uh, it I'll is tell cool. you from the outside. It is cool. I hear, I hear the biscuits in a lot of stuff, but you know, I'm not a member of the biscuits. So like, you know, my opinion on this matter is, is, is means different things, but more impartial than mine, I'd say for sure. (laughs) (laughs) I just think, I think you guys have had a huge influence on the scene and I think it's, um, you know, it's, it's worth noting. And anyway, we appreciate you taking so much time. And also, as I said at the beginning, the monologues on touchdowns all day are so money. Just keep, keep doing them because they're like, you know, in terms of single person intros, they're awesome. I laugh, I cry, I'm confused, as I said in your in your year end episode. It's awesome, great. man. It's awesome. That was so great. You're doing a great job and, and thanks for all the music and all the contributions. So th- and thanks for joining us for this podcast. Well it's a yeah, pleasure so to be here. It's a pleasure to hang with you guys. Thanks for listening to some jams with me. And love to do it again sometime. It was a lot of fun. That's all right. Great. We'll see you soon. Thanks, everybody. Keep on rocking. everyone i'm hal schwartz and i'm flynn mcclain together we host none but the brave a podcast dedicated to the music and career of bruce springsteen 
Bruce and E Street Band are on tour right now for the first time in six years, and we're taking a detailed look at what's happening on stage in our bi-weekly episodes. We've also been recently joined by some very exciting guests, including rock journalist Warren Zanes and Stephen Hyden, Backstreet's Magazine founder Charles Cross, and Barstool's Kirk Minahan. If you're a diehard Springsteen fan, this is the show for you. So please subscribe to Nimbut the Brave on your favorite podcasting platform, and we hope to see you further on up the road. Thank you so much! We'll be seeing you! Ever wonder what a punch from Elton John feels like? Or how you cope with having turned down the chance to be in Nirvana? Or what signal Keith Richards gives when he wants you to get the hell out of his hotel room? Fans of Too Much Effing Perspective don't have to wonder, because they've heard these exact stories and a jillion others on our podcast. I'm Alex Hoffman, former tour manager for Radiohead. And I'm musician and comedy writer Alan Keller. On the TMEP show, we get guests like Nancy Wilson from Heart, Jeremiah Freights from the Lumineers, and Modern Family's Julie Bowen to tell us things they may have only shared with their therapist, clergy, or a TMZ stringer. So join us on Too Much Effing Perspective. That's E-F-F-I-N-G Perspective. The only podcast you crank up to 11. <laughs>